Blog Talk Radio. edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and here we are on this day before the election, Election Monday, as some people over here in the chat room are calling it. And if you go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can see my title with the heavy theme of resignation in it. The title is this, is it time to stop leading the horse to water? And I think most of you who listen to me probably know I sometimes have these weird metaphorical titles, but I'm talking about this election and the idea that maybe it's just a little too soon for politics and maybe it takes us banging the head against the brick wall a few more times in in order to get it. You know, um, at a certain point you realize that it's time to just kind of cut your losses, lick your wounds, cling to your values, consolidate your strengths and just move on toward a goal that's a little bit more appropriate uh, well, what have we learned this election season? Probably that it is way too soon for politics, right? Um, it may be too soon for any realm where your idea of success has to do with convincing other people. And, and maybe sometimes that's just something that you got to take into different areas of your life. But, you know, the biggest scandal of this election is perhaps that there is a significant chunk, a huge chunk of the voting population that is so attached to collectivist ideology, you know, the idea that the group comes above the individual, whether in morality or politics or otherwise, that they are enamored of the idea of a female candidate simply because she's a female, you know, some sort of group think about how women need to be represented in politics. Uh, But worse than that, it's the campaign slogan that was adopted by this woman, namely Stronger Together. That's what she's been campaigning on, this idea that we are stronger together, regardless of the context and what what she means by together. Is she going to force you together? Yes, she is. Stronger together. And people are so enamored of this collectivist idea that they're willing to overlook a huge amount of evidence 
of corruption and just go ahead and vote for her. That to me is probably the scariest realization that I've had in this election. Jay in the chat room over here at blog talk radio says divide and conquer, you know, uh, unite and rule. Mo writes to stronger together. It takes a village. Yeah, this is all stuff. Uh, Herman in the chat room is anticipating when we're going to get the election results. I don't know. I mean, it might be quite close. The polls are going different ways right now. I mean, they're still saying the last that I checked over at 538 is that there's 60 some odd percent for Hillary, 32 ish for Donald Trump. That's slipped slightly in the past few days. It was 35 percent for Trump at one point according to 538. Um, Tim in the chat room has a fascist symbol symbolism reference for the Stronger Together logo. It's interesting, you know, because everyone always thinks of Donald Trump as the fascist. And then here we have Hillary Clinton maybe using a slogan. I mean, you know, it's collectivism through and through. And you could say that some of the appeal for people who are excited about Trump is a little bit of this collectivist thinking, this racist and nationalist type of thinking, the type of thinking that would support, you know, a tariff on companies, a 35% tariff simply because they want to do business outside of United States. That's something that Donald Trump would be in favor of. Uh, but if we want to look at it more optimistically, we've got Robert Nasir over in the chat room saying, happy two days until Sanity Returns Day. You know, I'm actually, so here I am in, in my little uh, theme of resignation show saying, okay, let's get a head start on returning sanity by emotionally disconnecting from the results of this election a bit. And And how do we know that we need to do this? I mean, I had had sort of a renewed attachment to the results of this election after the FBI director, James Comey, last week announced that he was renewing the investigation to Hillary Clinton. It seemed that high-level people in our government, namely the director of the FBI, was willing to stick his neck out in the name of, you know, the rule of law and integrity and all of these things. At least that seemed possible, that that was what was going on. And now we have the letter, Comey, you know, quickly concluding the investigation of 650,000 emails on the on the Wiener laptop and saying that he has no reason to change his conclusion in July, which is that there's not going to be an indictment. So we're going to go ahead and look at that um, in a little bit more detail in a minute. But basically what that did is that, you know, made me realize that, yeah, I got my hopes up again. And yeah, they were dashed and probably I'm banging my head up against the wrong wall. And I mean, you can tell yourself, right? You can tell yourself, yeah, I know it's too soon for politics and yeah, I'm arguing in favor of certain candidates, but I realize, you know, it's just too soon, but you still, you get emotionally attached. And so then the question is, you know, what is the proper attitude towards stuff like this going forward, given what we've learned about the voting public in this election about the culture, about the fact that it's probably too soon for any decent candidate to do well. Robert in the chat room, he says he's still optimistic. 
Uh, he says, most Hillary voters don't want a dictator. They just want a woman. Okay, well, there's that. He says, most Trump voters don't want a Fuhrer. They just want a non-politician. So you have a more positive interpretation of this. And so then the question is what? That nonetheless, they are taken in by her simply because she's a woman and so that she's able to get away with this incredible corruption? Um, or are they you know, because, because they want a woman, it's identity politics. It is a form of collectivism, something that we should worry about. Um, oh, now they're talking in the chat room about the, the spirit cooking stuff. You know, when people have to resort to that, instead of looking at the collectivist ideas that this woman is spouting, it, it, you know, again, it's just so far off the point of the basic philosophy that we need to worry about that I'm scared. So, so, so let, let's go back to what Robert's saying here. He says, most Hillary voters don't want a dictator. They just want a woman. Most Trump voters don't want a Fuhrer. They just want a non-politician. And, okay, that, that's fine. But, you know, in terms of wanting a woman, that is a collectivist sort of notion. It's not as evil as, for example, they really want to engage in this orgy of self-sacrifice that the woman happens to be spouting, but they are willing to accept the orgy of self-sacrifice that she's offering, and they're willing to overlook the corruption simply because she's a woman. And so you have this population that's looking at people based on their sex and their race and everything else, which is very collectivist and, to me, very disheartening. Uh, Trump voters, they want a non-politician. Okay, so that's fine. And and I think a lot of it is that they're reacting in anger to all the things that these establishment politicians have brought to us. But then the question is, are they just acting on their emotion? They're overlooking the sort of things that he is promising. Now, we're going to look at his latest op-ed for USA Today, and he promises a couple of decent things there, but some of it's empty. He doesn't flesh it out. And, um, you know, again, I think voting for Trump simply because he's a non-politician is a little bit of a scary prospect as well. Talking about the cooking spirit thing in there. Um, is it indicative of the staff's philosophies, et cetera? You know, I, I don't... No, you know, the fact that there's going to be some mysticism along with the collectivism in Hillary Clinton's staff is is not surprising. John Stewart in the chat room says most Hillary voters want to fit in with their friends. Now that in and of itself is also a little bit of a collectivist idea. Jay says Craig Biddle's article about education was far scarier than anything I've seen through most of this election cycle. Yeah, I mean, you could say that the rigging of this election happened with the government takeover of education. And that's really what we're seeing. In any event, we're going to get a sense of how bad it is and talk a little bit more about what the attitude should be going forward during this show. Again, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com to check out the program notes for today's show. If you want to call me, and participate not just here in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio, but also live on the air. The number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 
1-888-346-9417. And if you do call in and you want to talk, go ahead and hit the one button because then I know that you're not just listening in the queue, but you also do want to talk. So um, like I said, let's go over to the program notes. Let's see what we got lined up here. I have a message, you know, kind of method to the madness. As you all have heard, FBI Director James Comey has said that the emails that the FBI found on Anthony Weiner's laptop, that they warrant no new action against Hillary Clinton. That is the headline from the New York Times. And what I want to do is actually just take a look at the letter. Let's parse the letter that he sent to members of Congress announcing this yesterday, November 6th. And, you know, it's funny when I, so I'm putting together what I want to analyze for this show. And of course I want to analyze this letter. So I put that down and I'm anticipating a lengthy letter. I hadn't looked at it yet and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to look at this letter. We're going to really parse it and analyze it and stuff. This is a short letter. So it's not even one that I printed out in order to prepare for this show. I, I mean, this is really quite sad. You know, he gets everybody all stirred up about this on both sides, the Trump supporters, the Clinton supporters, and then he's got this tiny letter. So he says, I write to supplement my October 28, 2016 letter that notified you the FBI would be taking additional investigative steps with respect to former Secretary of State Clinton's use of a personal email server. Since my letter, the FBI investigative team has been working around the clock to process and review a large volume of emails from a device obtained in connection with an unrelated criminal investigation. Anthony Weiner. Yeah. Okay. He didn't say that, though. He says, during that process, we reviewed all of the communications that were to or from Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State. Based on our review, we have not changed our conclusion that we expressed in July with respect to Secretary Clinton. He says, I am very grateful to the professionals at the FBI for doing an extraordinary amount of high-quality work in a short period of time. So what is there to parse here? I think what there is to parse here is what he reviewed, right? He says, we reviewed all of the communications that were to or from. Now, of course, what does review mean? I've got one article at the blog at don'tletitgo.com from Wired Magazine, and they talk about how computers can quickly review all sorts of correspondence and filter it out and, you know, find, for example, all of the emails that are to or from Hillary Clinton really quickly narrow down to those. Then they can find all the ones of those that are duplicates from the ones that they've ever interviewed, you know, excuse me, not interviewed, but reviewed in the past so that they can get rid of those. And then the question is of the ones that remain, you know, we don't know how many there were. Did they go ahead and look at those with human eyes or human eyes, not human eyes, but human eyes, two words. Uh, and Or did they just use some sort of computer algorithm to do word searches and stuff in those and, and not really look at those themselves, right? Who knows? I don't know. What does review mean? But then they say, okay, the communications that were to or from Hillary Clinton, mind you, when we have been looking at the WikiLeaks, the WikiLeaks emails, a lot of the ones that are the most revealing 
are not necessarily to or from Hillary Clinton, right? So, and, and, you know, a lot of the WikiLeaks that we have been and we're going to talk about today are not necessarily relevant to the issue of using a personal email server to handle potentially classified information. That is one problem that there's been with the Hillary Clinton term as Secretary of State, and these are concerns we have about her as president, her handling of mishandling of classified information. But there's a whole nother access, uh, axis, excuse me, I'm misspeaking today. There's a whole nother axis, which is this issue of pay to play. How much were foreign governments in particular buying influence over Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State. That is a real concern. So, um, you know, you could say, okay, well, the communications that were to or from Hillary Clinton might be relevant only to the email server investigation, but that doesn't mean that a whole lot of this other stuff that they're talking about on WikiLeaks, which has to do with the pay-to-play issue, is not a real thing. And it's probably something that they wouldn't necessarily find in these emails here, right? It's the Podesta emails that are the treasure trove out there on WikiLeaks right now. So, you know, again, when you're looking at what he's saying here, they're to or from Clinton. And I would say the to or from Clinton is not enough, even when you're talking about the email scandal. And it's certainly not enough for the pay to play. Let me give you an example of why it wouldn't even be enough for the email scandal. You may have seen the story that I've got in the program notes that Hillary Clinton asked her maid to print out classified emails for her and, or, you know, emails that were potentially classified at least. And that in and of itself is a mishandling classified information. We have learned uh, in the past also, I think, from some of the either interviews with Huma Abedin or the WikiLeaks that they routinely had to print out these for her. So what if it on, you know, on that laptop, Huma Abedin is emailing something to herself. She's forwarding emails to herself. That's not going to come across as to or from Hillary Clinton. It's going to be you know, Huma Abedin forwarding it to herself, maybe in order to print it. This is something that some people have been speculating about. That is not going to show up as an email to or from Hillary Clinton. And then he says to or from Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State. There might be things that were emailed to or from Hillary Clinton, either before or after she was Secretary of State that could be relevant to this. As well. So I would say this is a, you know, very precisely worded email that describes a very limited search that, in my opinion, wouldn't necessarily be exhaustive with respect to the things that would be relevant, even to the personal email server issue. And certainly, you should not take this as somehow exonerating Hillary Clinton of all the things that have been out there and shown to, you know, uh, as a result, a lot of the WikiLeaks and things like that. So that's his email. Uh, Mo says they just checked the metadata. Yeah, maybe they checked only the metadata. We're not sure. We're not sure. State defiance, the conclusion that they will not prosecute criminal behavior. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's another thing you can look at, right? Because if you go back to the July pronouncement 
by Comey, he in effect lays out the prima facie case for Hillary Clinton having broken the law and then yet decided or says in there that no reasonable prosecutor would indict in this case. So, yeah. Um, so this is this is disheartening. This makes you wonder why he even bothered in the first place. Uh, maybe he had originally planned to do something better with this investigation and somebody got to him and put the pressure on him and he figured out how to smooth it over and save face supposedly with respect to everybody. I am not sure, but this is what we're ending up with as a result of, you know, getting our hopes up last week and thinking that Comey was actually going to do something uh, of relevance in this investigation. And it, it just, it just didn't happen. Um, if, you know, again, if you're curious, yes, you know, the FBI can vet 650,000 emails in eight days, according to Andy Greenberg over at Wired Magazine, and he describes exactly how that can be done using various computer algor algorithms and such. But we don't know the specific numbers, and Wired says that they had actually asked FBI for some comment about, in particular, how they did it, and they haven't heard anything in particular, but to me, again, you parse that very short letter that he wrote, and you can see that there are potentially relevant chunks of information that they chose specifically not to look at. When they say that they're going to look, oh, you know, that they did look only at emails to or from Hillary Clinton during the time that she was Secretary of State, I think that there are potentially relevant things that they overlooked, even with respect to the issue of mishandling the classified information. And like I said, one of the stories that was floated out there that seems very plausible given Hillary Clinton's penchant for having all the emails printed out is that Huma Abedin could have forwarded some things to herself and then it would have shown up as something sent by her to her. That's my analysis of it anyway. So, so do check that out. Uh, relevant to that is this story from New York Post. New York Post, I think, was picking it up from one of the British news sources. And the headline is, Clinton directed her maid to print out classified materials. As Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton routinely asked her maid to print out sensitive government emails and documents, including ones containing classified information from her house in Washington, D.C., emails and FBI memos show but the housekeeper lacked security clearance to handle such material. In fact, Marina Santos was called on so frequently to receive emails that she may hold secret the secrets to email gate if only the FBI and Congress would subpoena her and the equipment she used. Clinton entrusted far more than the care of her D.C. residence known as Whitehaven to Santos. She expected the Filipino immigrant to handle state secrets further opening the Democratic presidential nominee to criticism that she played fast and loose with national security. She would first receive, Clinton would first receive highly sensitive emails from top aides at the State Department and then request that they in turn forward the messages and any attached documents to Santos to print out for her at the home. Request that Santos print out drafts of her speeches, confidential memos, and quote, call sheets background information and talking points prepared for her in advance of a phone call with a foreign head of state. 
quote, please ask Marina to print for me an AM. Clinton top aide Huma Abedin regarding a redacted 2011 message marked sensitive but unclassified. In a classified 2012 email dealing with the new president of Malawi, another Clinton aide, Monica Hanley, advised Clinton, we can ask Marina to print this. Quote, revisions to the Iran points was the subject line of a classified April 2012 email from Clinton to Hanley. In it, the text reads, Marina is trying to print for you. So I think this gives you an idea that there is something there, even with respect to the mishandling of the classified information. And this is nothing that would have come up apparently in the very limited of what Comey said that they actually did in that letter that he sent to Congress. So what are people doing all around though? I mean, you know, I have friends on Facebook who are more liberal and when the headline came out that, you know, Comey went ahead and cleared Clinton, they send this out there and they say, see, I told you so she's wonderful. Everything's great. And now we can all vote for her with a clear conscience. They are taking it exactly the way that a couple of my Facebook friends feared that it might be taken. So, you know, when I posted last week, in reaction to, uh, you know, Comey's announcement, right? It was a week and a half ago or something. I said, okay, um, you know, God bless Julian Assange. This is great. They're actually going to do something. I was fairly optimistic. I tried not to get my hopes up too much. So then I have one friend who, you know, is very skeptical about anybody who has a position high up in government like Comey. And, didn't even really in his mind have any option that Comey was up to something that was good. Then I had another friend who was kind of on the fence a little bit and saying, okay, well, I sort of hope that it's good, but here's my theory for what they're trying to do. And what they're trying to do in effect is inoculate the voters from being influenced by the WikiLeaks, right? Because WikiLeaks, there's a whole lot of damning information there about Hillary Clinton, if anybody wants to actually sift through it and look at it. And so what's the goal? Go ahead and inoculate the voter from this. And in effect, that is what Comey's little limited reinvestigation has done. It's a total diversion because it has to do with Anthony Weiner as well. But it, may, it gives people the impression that somehow the FBI has looked at all the new information that has come in, even though they haven't. They've never said that they have. People just read headlines. They're believing what they want to believe. And again, you ask yourself, people are not being careful about whom they're voting for in this election. Is it time to stop leading the horse to water? So... Uh, you know, again, this is really one of the main reasons that I've gotten that sense and was inspired to have this title today because it is really disheartening to see the voters not pay attention to this and to the extent that they might be paying attention to this, they are easily diverted and they're back on the track of voting for the first woman president because Comey's investigation is over. It's really really sad. Now, Jay says, there have been Hillary proponents saying that she'll get us to rock bottom faster. Yeah, so there are people who are on the premise that we do need to get to rock bottom 
and that maybe we'd made as well just go there faster. What? And then rip off the Band-Aid, right, all at once really quick and get it over with. What is going to happen in getting us to rock bottom and what is that going to mean for each of our lives? We're getting a taste of it with the big, you know, bills that we're being faced with under Obamacare and stuff like that. It's going to get a lot harder. Mo says, does she need to be fully prosecuted to pardon herself? Oh, I don't know. You know, if if she gets elected, do you think there's even a chance that she is ever going to get indicted or impeached or anything else? Motive power. Oh, they're talking about this hitting of rock bottom. Yeah, Tim says in the chat room, if Hillary becomes president, she will be immune from prosecution for crimes committed before assuming office. Then she can pardon herself. Hi. Motive power says, I trust Marina more than Hillary. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> that, that, that could be true as well. But nonetheless, there is a protocol for these things. And Hillary seems to have violated the protocol. State defiance, nobody in government is trustworthy to do their jobs anymore from the top down. Not sure how we ever fix this. Well, we're going to have to fix this, I think, first through education. And, you know, is this really going to affect how we're going to vote in this particular election? I don't know. Maybe not. I do have a call over here on the switchboard that I'm going to grab. Hi, I'm guessing that this might be Debbie from the area code. Am I right? Hi, Amy. Yeah, it's Debbie. Hi. Long time no here. Thanks for calling in. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. And you? You can tell I'm kind of hanging in there, right? I'm okay. I'm in I'm in this I'm in this place where it's you know you think okay you've got yourself invested in somebody doing the right thing about something with respect to this election. And at yeah. every single turn, you know, every single turn we're being foiled, and it's very, very frustrating. It is. It is. I uh, well, I, I'll tell you though, one thing that I thought when I heard about that there was a lot of pressure on Comey from the rank and file in the FBI, I found that very encouraging. I found it more encouraging than the fact that he possibly responded to it, or at least appeared to have been responding to it. Because one person, you know, is is only one person, and yeah, each individual can do a lot. But but, like say, just to take an example, if Ayn Rand had just stayed in Russia, no matter how amazing she is or was, uh, she couldn't have changed the culture there. So I mean, there's there is a limit to what one person can do, and the fact that there were many can, comprising a groundswell, I found that more heartening. Thing that Comey did. I, I'm really not that surprised that he um, has sort of um, just backed off from it. And right. uh, I, I actually would have been surprised if anything had happened, that if any real meaningful action had been taken against Hillary. It's just not something that happens. They're just not held accountable. And um, so I guess I didn't really get my hopes up to begin with. I think your disappointment indicates a level of optimism that exceeds mine. <laughs> Maybe that's right, you know. And and again, you're talking to the person who many many years ago, I don't know, you're probably too young to remember, but the whole thing with the OJ verdict, the OJ verdict was turned around by the jury fairly quickly. 
And then there was this lag of time between the announcement that a verdict had been reached and the actual pronouncement of the verdict. So everybody is speculating, okay, well, the fact that the verdict was reached in a short period of time, does it mean that OJ was found guilty or not guilty? And at the time, I made a bet, and I actually ended up making a bet with Leonard Peikoff, which is pretty funny, but I bet that it was guilty, and he bet that it was not guilty. Um, And, of Mm. course, I lost. I lost that bet. Um, yeah. because I, I was kind of this, this eternal optimist waiting, you know, getting my hopes up and getting them dashed. And there's been just a number of times since, you know, where we thought that maybe Ted Cruz really had a chance. We probably should have known that even Ted Cruz flawed as he is, was way too good to make it through the nomination process in this election cycle. Right. Well, I actually thought he had a very good chance of it just because of the fact that he is was had a little bit more moral clarity about him and had a little bit more courage than the average politician and certainly the average Republican. And I still think that if it hadn't been for Trump, there was a very good chance. I, I would have put the money, my money on Cruz to win the nomination if, if it had not been for Trump. So um, I, I, and to me, like that wasn't even, it didn't feel like optimism. I just thought, well, the last person who was, he was similar to Reagan in the way that he kind of spoke out really boldly and, um, and Reagan won in a landslide and yeah, the culture's changed since then, but I don't think it's so, changed so much that absent Trump, Cruz couldn't have got the nomination. Um, well, but Trump, what I, what I, what I think it shows is that, the culture is less intellectual, right? Oh so, my God, yes. so you've got this anger, and the anger, you know, behind it, if people were to explore why they're angry and exactly what needs to be changed, you know, and they, and they really thought about it and they were open to argument and evidence, then they would reach the conclusion that Cruz probably would have been the best person for most of these voters. But instead, they went for the guy that appealed more directly to the emotion. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the one who was able to rile up the crowd's emotions in particular, which is Trump. And that is something that maybe we should have seen would be likely, because now we're looking at a couple more decades of progressive education since Ronald Reagan. Yeah, boy, that rampant emotionalism is... Uh... Wow, yeah, I had definitely underestimated the power of that. And and even with Hillary, I just I can't believe that even Democrats are okay with how fast and loose she was with the security stuff. I mean, just to give you an example, when I was in going to college, I had an internship at a missile defense company, and they did handle some classified information. And if you wanted to get access to that information, first of all, you had to have the full security clearance. But the only place where any classified documents were was in a, in a vaulted room with a key code and with no windows and no external connections by via Internet or phone or anything. And it right. was strictly forbidden to print a document and bring it out of the classified area 
they were monitored closely with security guards, and it was just taken very, very seriously. And then just to, to juxtapose that image with one of asking a non-citizen or at least uh, someone who wasn't born here, their maid, just asking their maid to go ahead and print things up for me. I, that's just insane. And then Huma, isn't she, didn't I read, I think I remember reading a few years ago that she was a member of the Muslim, had a ties with the Muslim Brotherhood, which right. is a terrorist organization. And so yeah. she's also handling all this stuff for Hillary. Did she have security clearance? I doubt it. Well, but and then, I, I and then for, forget this. Suppose Huma Abedin is a completely trustworthy human being. Ha, ha, ha. So here she is potentially, and, and again, I don't think based on what I read in Comey's letter that their investigation, their very limited investigation of these 650,000 emails, that it would have uncovered this. Suppose Huma Abedin was emailing this sensitive stuff to herself on this laptop so that she could print for Hillary. Even if Huma herself is the most trustworthy person in the world, she is not follow, you know, following the proper security protocol. These protocols are there for a reason. And, you know, again, I, I think it's a disputed issue whether there was actual hacking into any of this stuff. We know that Hillary Clinton said during the most recent debates, the, the last, like one of the last two debates, if not both, that there's been no evidence of any hacking, but I saw a news story recently that alleged that there was, you know, was there any, even if there wasn't, it doesn't matter. The whole point is these procedures are in place. Even when I was teaching at the air force Academy, the records that I had about the students who were future officers in the air force, those records had a certain level of sensitivity and I was expected to handle them in certain ways and protect them, you know, and certain things I'd have to shred and all this. So it's there for a reason. The fact that it wasn't compromised is not the most important thing. Right, exactly. And security protocols only work if you follow them 100% of the time. I mean, that's kind of the basis, the, the principle behind them is that you don't know when a breach might occur, and it doesn't matter if one actually does it or not, but anytime you create that opportunity, um, there, there's a likely, at least there's the possibility that it's going to happen. And eventually, if enough people do breach the protocol, it becomes very likely that something's going to happen, like a hacking or whatever. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so you, I, you are not as disappointed as I was about this. And so kind of, you know, what, what is your attitude going forward in terms of the relationship of, the battle for the culture versus politics? I think that it has to be fought independent of politics in different areas, like in education and that kind of thing. I think it's a waste of time to, to really pay much mind to politics right now because it's the most emotionally charged, it's an emotionally charged domain anyway, as opposed to um, like just say science maybe. I mean, yeah, there's the politicized aspects of science now with the global warming people, the environmentalists, but just in general, if you think about how people respond to a discussion about science or just about, um, I don't know, any number of things that are not political, it's not mm -hmm. as emotionally charged. It's not, it doesn't lend itself to that as much because politics, whether or not people explicitly know it, when you're talking about politics, 
it is in at least on emotional level it registers in people's minds that you're talking about force you're talking about deploying the use of force in some way or another right and there's no way for that not to be emotional so um i just um i think that it has to be fought on different fronts other besides politics and that politics is going to be the last thing to change not the first and so that basically you could work in terms of exposing people to the philosophy that underlies the correct politics, but you wouldn't put a whole lot of time and emotional investment into current politics itself because, you know, again, I, what, do, what do you do? We get ourselves quite invested in this, and, and it's hard not to be. So, for example, you know, this just a little preview of the op-ed that Hillary Clinton wrote for USA Today. There's these dueling op-eds that USA Today has published, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. And Hillary Clinton has promised, I mean, this is a doubling down on something that I've been concerned about before. She has promised within the first 30 days of her presidency to start, you know, to initiate a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. She is going on the war path against freedom of speech in this country within the first 30 days. And she's doing it alongside a call that everybody should rally around her and she wants to be everyone's president. You know, she's going to be mom, you know, but a big sister basically to everyone. And she wants to leave influence over elections to people like her who are able to somehow wield influence with the media or are somehow able to rig primaries and stuff using the DNC and all the ways that the WikiLeaks have revealed. She, people like her, should have special access to rigging elections. But if, you know, the average corporation wants to spend their own money in order to spread ideas, that should not be allowed, according to Hillary Clinton. And this is scary. It is scary. And I do think that there are some issues like freedom of speech that, I mean, at least whenever I've talked to people in a one-on-one or in a one-on-one setting, and maybe I associate with a better quality of people that doesn't represent (laughs) the general population, maybe, I don't know, but just people at work, you know, people who aren't objectivists, but who are, who are rational and smart. And if you talk to them about something like freedom of speech, they, they're on board with uh, keeping that. But then they hate corporations because, it's, you know, sometimes people have that just visceral hatred of corporations and they, they just say, oh, it's people with money and power and they're stifling the little guy. That's not about freedom of speech. In fact, the little guy is being censored by the big money because his voice is being drowned out, you know, like that whole thing. It just, right. I, I mean, it's horrible and it's scary. And I, I I don't know. I mean, I speak up about it. You should still speak up about things like that when you can. It's just that I don't expect there to be a lot of progress made um, in the political area. I think the most right, right, and 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 that's that's the that's the thing. It's like it's figuring out how to get the correct balance because obviously I'm sitting here doing a radio show and I plan to continue doing this show as long as it's legal to do so. And one of the things that I like to do is analyze things that are going on in politics and talk about what ideas they flow from and what the likely effects are going to be and how it is that they try to get their message across in ways that I think really hide their real agendas and, you know, fallacies they commit and all this stuff that I I love to do. And Mm -hmm. how do I do that? 
and then not get emotionally invested in the outcome. I don't know, I don't know, Debbie, if you had a chance to look over the program notes, but one of the articles that I included in there today was um, this article about a doctor, emergency room doctor doing his job. And he said, and it was a LinkedIn thing that he shared and some, some friend of mine on Facebook shared it and I forgot whom. So I wasn't able to give proper credit, unfortunately, but um, basically he said the way that he survives being a doctor is to realize that it is just a job. And, you know, how can I, you know, put the adequate effort and care into what I'm doing and stuff like this? And then at the same time think, okay, well, it's just a job and I shouldn't get so emotional about the outcome when the outcome is going to be stuff like this, you know, this, this overturning of Citizens United, if she, if she can achieve it, who knows if she can, right? Constitutional amendment is a hard thing to actually, you know, get over, but if anybody could do, you know, she says, I will not quit Hillary Clinton, right? Even Trump admires well, her because she won't quit. Uh, you know, I, I focus as much as possible on just the enjoyment of thinking about these issues. I mean, you said you like thinking about these things and, and, and get satisfaction out of talking about them and analyzing it on the air. And um, so I would just focus a little bit more on that. Like um, just on the pleasure you get from thinking these things through and having that clarity and putting it out there for people. And then, um, you know, I don't know, it's easier said than done to separate that emotionally from the outcome. And if you weren't passionate about the outcomes, you probably wouldn't have too much interest in doing anything. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's hard, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just, whenever I'm having a hard time at work, myself because of just whatever issues uh like my boss or whatever um when i'm able to immerse myself in just the mechanics of thinking about problems and solving problems then i lose that anxiety and kind of get lost in the work so um i don't know that's right. the best advice i have to offer well th- thank you and, and i mean i i think it's along the lines of some of the thinking that i had when i was kind of preparing my little monologue for this show you know if if you have this idea in any realm where your idea of success is is has to do with convincing other people that Mm -hmm. you somehow have to actually convince them in order to have done your job well that you're setting yourself up for failure you know so if I go back to the metaphor instead of leading the horse to water at a certain point you just say look I'm going to walk towards the water and I'm going to leave it to the horse to follow me to the water and maybe drink the mm-hmm. water or not and have my idea that, um, you know, I myself in my conduct and behavior and the way I lead my life, I'm showing that, leading, you know, going to the water and drinking the water is the good thing. And I'll just have the idea that if a horse goes along and actually drinks the water, that that's a good horse. And I'll just, you, know, you see what I mean? The way yeah, that you could just start to, to draw out this metaphor. This is the sort of thinking that I have. And at a certain point you do, you have to do that. You just have to let go of the idea of, of convincing these other people and focus on the work that's satisfying to you that seems to be enough of a value to other people that they're either listening or paying you money or whatever, right? Yeah. And go on with your day. Yeah. Right, like in Terminator, come with me if you want to live. <laughs> to the horse. 
<laughs> there's that, but, uh, right? But but people don't yeah. see it that way in in our realm right now, right? A lot of them they actually think, no. you know, and and Hillary talks in her op-ed about the fact that it's, you know, band together or live in fear. Those are your options. And uh, a lot of people buy yeah. that as the two options. Well, 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 another thing about convincing people. So if your goal is to change someone's mind, unless it's about like something just factually concrete, like what day of the week it is, it's not going to happen. And, but what you can do, and, uh, and I think that it really helps if you can find some way to get feedback. I'm not sure how you would, but plant questions in their mind is um, something that you can do. And, um, and you can measure success in, in some ways, like by how the listenership is growing and that you're being broadcast on two radio stations now and things like that. So there are kind of indirect ways that you can, things that are maybe a little bit more objective and measurable that relate to convincing people, but not just like to the full, oh, you've completely changed my mind, like that kind of thing. Um, just maybe getting questions planted in people's minds getting them to listen and consider something um, a little bit outside what their current Well, and, you know, also just kind of myself looking at my work and saying, okay, did I clearly convey this particular point and this argument? I didn't necessarily convince anybody, but did I put forth the best case that I knew how? And if if I, right, if I can look at it and say, okay, I did that, then, then that's really my goal. So, so yeah, so this, this is a little bit of a lick my wounds and go on sort of show, but at the same time, I'm going to do some of the things that I love best, which is to analyze these two op-eds from our two candidates. If there's anybody who is still trying to figure out what they want to do tomorrow, particularly in a swing state and thinks that they might vote for one or the other of these two, then what I'm doing here today might be helpful. Did you already vote, Debbie, with the uh, puke by mail ballot, as we call it, or are you going to have to go to the polls? Uh, go to the polls. Yeah, I'm going to have okay. to go to the polls. Okay. I'll, I'll be interested to hear if you have any kind of experience with that. I'm going to do a show here again on Wednesday, and uh, we'll do a little kind of post-election. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be Post-mortem? commiseration or what. I don't know what. I, I You know, it, it's still unbelievable to me that one of these two is going to win and be president of the United States. It's just uh, I'm hard at Well, yeah. I, you can at least be glad that Obama won't be anymore, right? Yes. I mean, kind of nice. Yes. <laughs> it's, you know, there it's, was, it's worth replacing him for a different scumbag. But uh, at least it'll be, you know, we can have some variety and we can hate someone else now. <laughs> right, right. You know, there was there was one article that I was thinking of putting into the mix here today, and that was one saying that his approval ratings has go, have gone way up. And I don't know if it's people are having nostalgia for him because they think somehow he's less dangerous than either of these two or whatever. Um. Oh, Okay. You know what? I'm sorry. I have to run. I've uh, something has come up, and uh, there's somebody coming to clean my carpet, and he's outside. So okay. Well, no, no problem. Thank you very much, Debbie, for taking the time to call, and we'll we'll check in again after the election. So yeah, thanks for calling. If anybody else wants to call in and talk about these issues, seven six zero eight 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 five eight one seven. Again, that's seven six zero eight 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 five eight one seven. Do make sure to press the one button. So going back over to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, 
and all of the program notes that I've got up here. I have a number of things that you should just take under advisement and look at because these are things that are fairly well referenced and are not part of the scope of the very limited FBI cursory review of a bunch of emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop. These are things that have come out since July that Comey did not look at as either relevant to the mishandling of classified information issue or the pay-to-play stuff. And like I said, I just did the article. We just talked about the article where Clinton directed her maid to print out classified materials. This is a horrible violation of protocol for handling of sensitive information. You know, I wouldn't even do that with respect to the records of grades and assignments and stuff like that that I had for the cadets at the Air Force Academy when I was working there. I had signed, you know, non-disclosure agreements for a lot of this stuff, and I kept to the protocol. Here's the pay-to-play axis. First, this is from Reuters, okay? So I'm not looking at some vast right-wing conspiracy of biased, you know, Breitbart or Infowars or whatever these sources are. This is Reuters, Friday, November 4th. Clinton's charity confirms Qatar's $1 million gift while she was at the State Department. So the Clinton Foundation has confirmed it accepted a $1 million gift from Qatar while Hillary Clinton was U.S. Secretary of State without informing the State Department, even though she had promised to let the agency review new or significantly increased support from foreign governments. Qatari officials pledged the money in 2011 to mark the 65th birthday of Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton's husband, and thought to meet the former U.S. president in person the following year to present him the check, according to an email from a foundation official to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign chairman, John Podesta. The email among thousands hacked from Podesta's account was published last month by WikiLeaks. So we have Reuters picking up on some of these WikiLeaks. Remember, everyone says, oh, WikiLeaks, we don't know if it's real. WikiLeaks has been validated at the very least by the fact that the DNC and CNN have made firing decisions based on leaks from WikiLeaks. If there wasn't anything there, then they wouldn't have done this. And now we've got Reuters also reporting on it. These emails can also be validated through various looks at metadata that I don't understand that are beyond my technical grasp, but we have seen these validated and we're seeing Reuters now, uh, you know, you know, publicizing this. So first of all, she had signed an ethics agreement that she violated by not telling them. And then, you know, you could say, okay, well, there's no evidence that policy was influenced by this uh, donation, et cetera, et cetera. Correlation is not causation, but the whole purpose of the, informing requirement, you know, the fact that you have to notify the State Department when you get these donations is because there is at least the appearance of impropriety. And wouldn't you have a hard time not being influenced by somebody who was giving you a lot of money, right? Um, I, I think it is it is very tough. And, you know, the people in all sorts of nonprofits will have this sort of problem and not necessarily just with respect to, you know, for example, there were these old stories where Ayn Rand 
um, she was offered big donations. I forget somebody in Texas or whatever offered her a huge donation. If she would just say that Christianity was compatible with capitalism or something like that, right? You could be tempted to do something like that for a large donation that you think would help you spread your ideas. Of course, if you have integrity, you're not going to, because you know that if you try to say something like Christianity is compatible with capitalism and you truly believe that it's not, and the philosophy that you promote says that it's not, that you've lost your integrity and you've lost your ability to actually achieve the mission that you have. But if you're someone like Hillary Clinton, who apparently has no principles, they've also shown through WikiLeaks that she says one thing to one audience and one thing to another audience. And who knows, you know, she's very, very pragmatic about what she says her views are on Wall Street and fossil or fracking. Fracking was another topic, a variety of things, right? Of course, she'll be flowed. I mean, flowed. Of course, she'll be influenced by this cash flow that's coming in. So that's scary. Um that's a pay to play. Now, another axis of, you know, potential problems for Hillary Clinton that's revealed by some of these emails is one of her helping radical Muslims achieve strongholds of power around the world. So, this is a headline from a Daily Caller article. Daily Caller analyzed some of the material in the WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks has retweeted this out there. By the way, if you are overwhelmed by WikiLeaks, I said this in my last show, but I'm going to say it again. If you're overwhelmed by the sheer amount of information in these emails and you would like to get a sense of some of the most important pieces there and you would like to cash in on the fact that other people are doing this analysis and reporting on it, then if you go to WikiLeaks' own Twitter feed, you'll find that WikiLeaks will retweet links to some of these articles and direct you to places where you can actually learn. So this is just a little sample, this little bit that I'm giving you here today. If you go in and dig through that WikiLeaks Twitter feed, you can find a whole lot more. And I suggest that you do. If you're thinking of voting for Hillary Clinton tomorrow, today, whenever, take a look. It says Hillary Clinton knew she was helping Islamists move into power in Libya. Patrick Howley writes, for the Daily Caller, that Hillary Clinton received intelligence that her effort to bring down Libyan President Muammar Gaddafi was leading to the rise of al-Qaeda militants and the Muslim Brotherhood in the country, according to emails released by WikiLeaks. More than a year before the Benghazi attack, Clinton learned that al-Qaeda terrorists were infiltrating the post-Gaddafi transitional government. She also acknowledged that the Muslim Brotherhood wielded, quote, the real power in the rebel movement that Clinton was supporting. She acknowledged, again, repeat, that the Muslim Brotherhood wielded the real power in the rebel movement that Clinton was supporting and that their Brotherhood allies in Egypt were waiting in the wings to move into Libya's oil sector. Clinton received a, quote, confidential memo from Sidney Blumenthal on March 27, 2011. The subject of the email was, quote, re, lots of new intel, Libyan army possibly on verge of collapse. Blumenthal explained that, quote, radical slash terrorist groups were, quote, infiltrating the NLC or National Libyan Council, which is a rebel quasi-government 
that earned French recognition as Libya's governing body that very same month. Clinton was warned that al-Qaeda could become major players in the region. And then they have an extensive quote from Blumenthal. It says, the situation has become increasingly frustrating for French President Sarkozy, who, according to knowledgeable individuals, is pressing to have France emerge from this crisis as the principal foreign ally of any new government that takes power. Sarkozy is also concerned about continuing reports that radical-slash-terrorist groups, such as the Libyan fighting groups and al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM, are infiltrating the NLC and its military command. Accordingly, he asked sociologists who has long established ties to Israel, Syria, and other B6 nations in the Middle East to use his contacts to determine the level of influence of al-Qaeda in particular terrorist groups have inside. Sarkozy also asked for reports setting out a clear picture of the leadership. And then it says... um, Security officials, senior European security officials caution the AQIM is watching developments in Libya. Elements of the organization have been in touch with the tribes in the southeastern part of the country. They're concerned that a post-Qaddafi Libya, France, and other Western European countries must move quickly to ensure that the new government doesn't allow AQIM. Then, in May 30th, 2011... Jake Sullivan sent Secretary of State Clinton a full list of known, quote, Libya emissaries. And by then, it's no longer the NLC. It's something called the TNC, Transitional National Council. But the real power still lay with the Muslim Brotherhood. Quote, the Gaddafi regime has also met with the Libyan Muslim Brotherhood leadership in Egypt. According to Gaddafi Chief Chief, uh, Fuad's Latini, The Muslim Brotherhood asserts that the TNC may be the political leadership of the opposition, but the real power lies with the Libyan Brotherhood, and they are apparently willing to bide their time. So this is where the real power exists. Uh, Then again, they have another one. Uh, July 3rd, 2012, an email from Blumenthal to Clinton says the uh, upcoming election as of July 2012 was how the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was hoping to use the new Brotherhood Party in Libya to get into the Libyan oil game. And they give a whole email bit of evidence for that. So here we have in WikiLeaks evidence not necessarily of pay-to-play, not necessarily of the mishandling of classified information, but we have evidence that Hillary Clinton was aware her efforts were helping radical Muslims Right. You might you might say jihadists, you could say the, you know, fundamentalists, Muslims, these people of the Muslim Brotherhood of Al Qaeda get into power in Libya. And that, of course, part of the goal of having them in power in Libya was for the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt to be able to tap into the Libyan oil resources, which is a lot of money flowing to a terrorist organization. Hillary Clinton's aware of it. She's not doing anything about it to stop it, and we see these emails over the course of a year. She's going to be commander-in-chief of our country, perhaps, voted in tomorrow, you know, sworn into office in January. This is very scary stuff. And again, you know, what do we have? This is information from WikiLeaks. These emails have been validated. The validity of these emails has been shown. And none of these emails that I'm talking about here 
were examined as part of the FBI's cursory revisiting of their investigation. These are all things to worry about. I have another article over at don'tletitgo.com that is right after that one, you know, about Hillary Clinton knowing she's helping Islamists. Right after that one is an article that was sent on to me by Rob Abiera. Thanks, Rob, for sending this. And the headline is this, Hardline Strain of Islam Gains Ground in Indonesia, the World's Largest Muslim Country. And the headline is that police estimated 100,000 people turned out for a rally called for by hardline Muslim groups against the capital, Jakarta, Indonesia's Christian governor. So imagine you've got a capital's governor, one city's governor, and 100,000 people turn out for a rally that is called for by hardline Muslim groups in Indonesia. This just gives you an idea of the magnitude of this issue, that if Hillary Clinton been turning a blind eye or, in fact, enabling, you know, the Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, other Islamic terrorist organizations to gain power in various parts of the world. The fact that it's also going on in countries like Indonesia and that these radicals are going to get together and work against the United States and work against our allies, maybe destroy Israel. This is very disturbing. This woman's going to become commander-in-chief. It's quite scary. So look at the evidence, like I said, before you decide for whom to vote. Next in the program notes, I just have a link to WikiLeaks on Twitter. Go ahead and look there for more of the same. Okay, I'm going to go over to the chat room and the switchboard at Blog Talk Radio over in the chat room. Francis Doom says Herman the German. Hmm. What else? Oh, Sarkozy. He's told French children that they should voluntarily blend themselves with the incoming Muslim population or a more forceful method will be used. Oh, boy, that's a scary prospect. There's some things that I think are very good about France and some things that I think are quite scary. Freedom Breeze is saying when I lived there, I, I believe she means Indonesia in the early 90s as an expatriate, it was a, quote, moderate Muslim nation. Yeah, now it seems like it's going to the more extreme. Waldo in the chat room says, I still can't decide who's worst. It is hard to decide who's worst. You know, one friend of mine had posted this scary scenario, which is if you go back and look at the 72 election of Nixon, it turned out that by 74, Nixon was out of office and you had an entirely new president, Ford. But the scenario that took place after that, I mean, think about this, right? So Nixon's president, and I forget who his vice president is. I'm sorry, my history is really bad, and I was very young. Um, but his the vice president got caught up in some sort of scandal, and it was totally unrelated to anything that Nixon you know, was involved with, with the Watergate stuff. So the vice president had to be removed. Nixon got to appoint a new vice president at that point, Ford, and then when Nixon resigned, then Ford became president and was able to appoint a new vice president. This is according to the 25th Amendment of the Constitution that you can reread. So if you could think of Hillary Clinton becoming president and somehow Kane has to be removed 
from office. Everybody thinks Kane is okay or at least not as bad as Hillary or whatever. But suppose some scandal hit Kane and Kane had to leave. And then Hillary got to appoint somebody else, say, oh, I don't know, Sanders or Warren, right? Um, and then Hillary was removed, but then we have Sanders or Warren as president. And Sanders or Warren gets to appoint the vice president. Of course, you know, when they appoint, they vo- if they appoint a vice president according to the 25th Amendment, then that appointment has to be confirmed by Congress. But they're even talking about the Senate might go majority Democrat this time around. What is that Congress going to look like? It's a bunch of establishment hacks in the majority. We've got some good people, but we also have a lot of establishment hacks. So it is scary to think about how that process would go today. I guess with Ford, we got somebody who was decent but kind of weak. I don't know that we would get that today, particularly if it was Hillary Clinton, even if it was Trump who was doing the appointing. So, hmm. oh, they're talking in the chat room about different scenarios. What if it's 269, 269, and then they're going to get Pence as president and all this? I know some people that would be really upset about Pence as president because of his policy on homosexuals, but. Um, anyway, all of this is all academic until we see what I know is that I've seen the poll numbers, particularly with 538 slip in the past couple of days. You've got to attribute that to the FBI effectively inoculating everybody against the evidence of the WikiLeaks. The fact that people have been able to be diverted away from all of the evidence against Hillary Clinton in the WikiLeaks simply because the FBI told you that they did this very cursory examination of a fraction of the evidence that was on Humavidine's laptop. This is, this is shameful. It, it's really shameful. And like I said, to me, I found it quite disheartening this morning. So um, interesting article over in the program notes, what I learned from visualizing Hillary Clinton's emails that was sent on by William Bush. Thank you for that. What the author of that piece talks about is not so much the content of the emails, that when he puts these out in the world, you know, the fact that you could actually search the emails according to, uh, you know, kind of terms and stuff and come up with a whole lot of information, you can visualize them along various axes according to content and recipients and all this kind of stuff. He said that people didn't take it as what he was offering it as, which is just simply an information tool. He says that he himself has been supporting Hillary Clinton, that he's against Donald Trump, but nonetheless he believed it was important to create new ways for people to get objective information about vast quantities of data, which this WikiLeaks is. And so when he was putting it out there, he expected more attention from media, which he did not get, and he did not expect people to label him as a partisan hack and everything else. And in a way, you know, he also was, you know, dismayed, felt let down because of the reaction that he had to the information that he was providing to the American public. You know, it should be that we're concerned with the facts, with the real fact of the matter, the objective truth over whatever particular position you have going into a certain thing. You can't constantly have an open mind. You know, if you've heard the same argument over and over and over again, the fact that you're going to hear it again isn't going to sway you. But, you know, at the same time, you do have to be 
open to new information. And that's what this WikiLeaks does represent. So you should at least be concerned and you should be interested in a tool like what he offered that would allow you to aggregate and summarize and make sense of all of this data. And he found that people just weren't that interested. So, um, you know, and he says we should value disagreement in a certain way. You know, it, it helps to challenge our views. It helps to make our, our views stronger. And, and he was dismayed at the reaction that he got. I put in uh, the program notes right after that piece, one about the labor force participation rate. And I had posted about this on social media the mainstream media is trying to get you to think that the labor picture is all nice and rosy. It's not necessarily that because there is this lower labor force participation rate and you should at least look and care about what's the reason for that. And should we think that that's a good or okay thing or bad thing in today's climate? I argue that it is a bad thing because given that interest rates are so low and everything else, people do need to be working. And the fact that they're not is a bad thing, but, you know, interpret yourself. The reason I put it there was because the debate around this ended up itself getting kind of nasty and people not looking at the facts and starting to label each other as, you know, hacks and this and that, and, and, you know, forwarding government propaganda and, and everything else. And, even within my own social media bubble, as I like to call it, people not being respectful of each other or willing to engage in discussion. In part, I had one side where the guy was saying, you know, I've argued about this elsewhere, and he was sort of referring to his other work. And then if, you know, so he was only engaging to a very limited extent and dropping little selected comments. But then on the other side, I had somebody who was saying, well, this person is unreasonable, never wants to debate, and I'm not going to talk to this person. It's, it's not really called for, right? If we're going to have this discussion, this analysis of ideas, let's try to figure out what the truth is. I got into it a little bit and tried to talk about, you know, what's the demographic they're looking at and should we really be looking at the 25 to 54 demographic? And if not, why? Didn't get very far because it got kind of nasty. So what are we going to do going forward with this stuff? We'll see. Uh, Donald Trump proposes 35% tax on companies that outsource production. I will leave that for your edification if you're thinking of voting for Trump. 538, who will win the presidency? Last time I checked, 32% possibility for Trump, 68-ish for Hillary. Where the presidential race stands today, that's just a little thing that I sent you to. It's kind of food for thought because in that poll, you had a substantial number who were going to vote for Trump. And it actually seemed like more within this 3000 sample, we're going to vote for Trump. And yet a plurality in there thought that Clinton would actually, I think it was a majority, a majority thought Clinton would win, even though a plurality was going to vote for Trump. And I'm assuming that's the effect of the mainstream media making you think that Clinton being elected is a foregone conclusion that it's inevitable and that's something that we'll want to examine in the future, of course. One of the most, and I have people on Twitter that I follow who are saying, look, one of the worst things that we're learning in this election is how much the mainstream media is in the tank for one, you know, one candidate or the other. And how some of the alternative media, of course, themselves have been simply for Trump and not following proper protocols of reporting either. Like I said, WikiLeaks is one of the awesome pieces of information there. 
So let's look at the op-eds a little bit. I want to give you a little bit of analysis of these two op-eds. When you're going into Election Day, you've got Clinton versus Trump. And in Clinton's op-ed, she lays out what she you know, promises to do in the first 100 days or so. They're having a headline, you know, why, sh- why you should vote for me. And USA Today gave each of the candidates space, free space in their paper to say why you should vote for them. Uh, first of all, Clinton talks about she can, we can build an economy that works for everyone, or we can stack the deck even more for those at the top. So she's appealing to your sense of class warfare. Think of yourself as part of a collective based on your economic class. She says we can keep America safe through uh, strength and smarts or turn our backs on our allies and cozy up to our adversaries. Again, go back and listen to that story that I had about how she was aware of the fact that the efforts that she was engaged in as Secretary of State were shoring up the so-called Islamists in Libya. Uh, She says, we can come together to build a stronger, fairer America, right? So this collectivist come together, uh, fairer America, of course, she means egalitarianism, monetary egalitarianism, mostly. She says, or fear the future and fear each other. And I mean, to an extent, she's saying, look, don't operate on fear, which is one of the things that Donald Trump is tapping into. But she herself is adopting this idea that you Bind yourself into a collective, or if you're going to live life as an individual, then that's going to be very scary. You have a fear-ridden future out there. Uh, She talks about everything she's done as First Lady. She's listening. She's looking for common ground, even with people who disagree with me. She's already trying to appeal to those of us who do not like her, who will never like her. We're supposed to see her as our president, as big sister, accept her because she wants to shove her agenda down our throats and she doesn't want us to get in the way. Here are the four priorities that she says she's going to do. And she says, these are issues I've heard about from Americans all over the country. What is she using there? If you've studied a little intro philosophy, this is an appeal to authority, but it's what you call the quantitative version. So Americans all over the country, 50 million of them or whoever that she's listening to can't be wrong. And you should just realize that these are important issues. She says, first, we're going to put the biggest investment in new jobs since World War II. Investment, of course, means steal from one person and give it to another according to what she thinks should get done. She wants to give easy credit for small businesses. She thinks in America, if you can dream it, you should be able to build it. This is what we might call in philosophy primacy of consciousness. You put an I wish over it, it is. You have something that, for which someone could not get credit in the banking industry, and you're going to use the government to give them credit, even though it might not be a viable business plan. <sighs> she says, we'll pay for it all by asking the wealthy Wall Street and big corporations to finally pay their fair share. Yeah, asking. Government asks at the point of a gun, go to jail if you don't pay the taxes. She says, creating more jobs with rising incomes is a central mission. Government cannot create jobs. Say it 10 times. Government cannot create jobs. Then she says there's going to be immigration reform legislation. And, of course, what does she do to get you to accept this? 
The last president to sign comprehensive immigration reform was Ronald Reagan. So she's trying to invoke the spirit of Ronald Reagan for you to accept the fact that she's going to do this. What is she going to do? She's going to create a path to citizenship. She says it explicitly here in this op-ed, a path to citizenship. Uh, She says she's going to secure the border, but I gather there's been some WikiLeaks out there that she's got no such plan anytime soon. Um, And what else? What else? So then break the gridlock. She wants to break the gridlock in Washington, D.C. How? She says we have to get secret, unaccountable money out of our politics. That sounds good to you, right? We don't want secret, unaccountable money in our politics. Of course, she is the queen of secret, unaccountable money in politics, as evidenced by WikiLeaks, but you know, don't look behind the curtain, right? This is Wizard of Oz. She says, uh, the secret uncountable money is drowning out the voices of the American people. Within the first 30 days, she's going to introduce a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. Now, she doesn't tell you what Citizens United stands for exactly. It's just about corporations buying elections. Corporations buying elections. So you shouldn't be able, first of all, you cannot buy an election. You can buy ad space. You can buy airtime. Again, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but, right, you can't make them vote. Uh, You can rig elections the way that Hillary does. You can use whatever pull, I guess, you have. She doesn't want you to be able to use money. She wants political pull exercised by people like her to influence elections. She doesn't want any old corporation to be able to spend money. It is distinctly anti-American. Fourth, she says we have to have criminal justice reform. What does that mean exactly? She's talking about people being convicted for nonviolent offenses. If she's, you know, talking about drugs, okay, fine. But is she talking about theft and other things too? Is she making a blatant appeal to Black Lives Matter? Who knows? It's hard to say. Uh, Finally, she says, I want to be president for all Americans. Again, you know, she wants everybody to get behind her after the election's over. Forget that you know that she's corrupt that she is calling for us to engage in a pact of mutual enslavement. Forget all that. You're just supposed to love her big sister. She's awesome. She wants to be all of our presidents. You should make it so. She says this is about who we are as a country, whether we're going to have change that makes us stronger together or change that pushes us farther apart. And anybody knows that this is a false alternative. You do not have to sign a pact agreeing to mutual enslavement in order to avoid being, quote, pushed farther apart. You can engage in true teamwork on a voluntary basis. We need to work together and invest in each other, is what she concluded. Now, what does she mean by invest? She means we need to steal from some people and give that money to other people according to her policy priorities. So that is Hillary's. If you go over to Donald Trump's, why you should vote for me for the USA Today, he first talks about the fact that, you know, he's met all these people and your hopes have become my hopes and your dreams have become my dreams, right? You know, trust in me. You could have this snake from Jungle Book say, right? You know, trust in me. That's the, you know, he's, and he's hypnotizing you just like that, right? That's what he's doing. Repeal and replace Obamacare because Obamacare has all these horrible things that have come from it. Okay, replace with what we want to know. Uh, One thing that he talks about that is important, he's talking about school choice policy items here. School choice is huge, right? Again, how has this election been rigged? Because of government control, stranglehold over education. 
Drain the swamp of corruption in Washington. Yes, that sounds good. This is probably a winning issue for him, if anything. He says, if we want to make America great again, we must clean up this corruption. I would say clean it up and also put some term limits in there to prevent people from being entrenched so that this corruption can fester, right? Unfortunately, I think term limits are necessary right now. Uh, while we'd be engaging in this. But again, you know, here I'm, I'm giving you, I'm, I'm telling you, I shouldn't have this wish list of things that would actually happen in the real world politically now. And I can't help but proposing some of them anyway. I, I really have a hard time resisting this, this idea that this is just something over which we have no control now. I can sit here and analyze it and say what would be good, but I'm getting my hopes up at the same time and it's horrible. He talks about Hillary is likely to be under investigation for a long time. It's going to grind government to a halt. Oops, that was before he read the release from Comey. It looks like Comey may have succeeded in the goal of sweeping everything under the carpet. We have to cut our ties with the failed politicians of the past, namely the Clintons. Boy, would we love to do that. He says, so he's offering a contract with the American voter, and you can go to the trumpcontract.com. Um, what does he want to do? He's going to cut taxes on the middle class by 35%. That's something concrete, something good. We know that he plans to cut the corporate tax rate, which is also very good if you actually care about creating jobs, really creating jobs, because government can't create jobs. It's got to be business that does this. How can they do that? They can do that when they have a lower tax burden. Now, when he talks about replacing Obamacare, there's going to be reforms that expand choice, lower costs, and improve the quality of care. Again, I would ask, how, how, how? We want to know. One important difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton that you might be very concerned about, especially given the story that I talked about earlier with her willful ignorance of what was going on in Libya, he says, we're going to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of our country versus Hillary. She has pledged a 550% increase in Syrian refugees. You and I both know that there's a significant risk of ISIS infiltration in any refugee population coming from some of these war-torn countries in the Middle East. He says, I'll restore the constitutional rule of law and nominate Supreme Court justices who will do the same. Okay, maybe, maybe not. But at least now you know, right? You know, again, he wants you to trust him, to emotionally identify with him. He gives you a few crumbs, decent crumbs. But on the other hand, there's a lot of things like this 35% penalty that I put in the program notes that you should be wary of if you think you're going to vote for Trump whether you're in a battleground state or not. Okay, so that's the, that's the last that I have to say about analyzing these two ahead of Election Day. And I want to kind of go back to the theme that we're starting out with here, this theme of, you know, maybe we have to resign ourselves to not leading the horse to water. And I'm not saying, you know, that politics doesn't affect us. Right. Obviously, politics affects us. It has a terrible negative effect. It's going to affect our safety. It's going to affect our standard of living. It's going to affect our health care, whether our wonderful health care system in the United States is going to be allowed to continue to exist or it's going to be destroyed by further centralization and, and regulation. So it's not that this is not going to affect us. Right. These these things that we get ourselves so hung up on sometimes will 
affect us tremendously. But at a certain point you realize, and, and again, I'm realizing after this Comey thing, you're banging your head against a brick wall, right? And, and the emotional investment that you have in particular, you know, in something that simply can't pay off now is just not worth it. So you have to figure out, right? We should have known, here's a career FBI guy, like my friend on Facebook had said, you know, it's a career FBI guy. He's, he's at the very head of the FBI. We should have known that this was going to happen. I should have known when I bet on the OJ verdict years ago that it wasn't really possible for him to have been found guilty in that sense. So again, what's the goal? The goal is walk towards the water, leave it to the good horses to follow and to drink. That's the only message that I have. Go to don'tletitgo.com and you can see a little bit of cultural news. You can see some good news. Um, little bad cultural news. A hijab-wearing Muslim is now one of the beautiful faces of CoverGirl. So CoverGirl, which is helping women look beautiful and put a face that they're confident in out to the world, is being mixed with the message that you should, because of medieval superstition, wear something over your head on threat of punishment and that that's going to be good. Undercover sting nabs a California mother selling ceviche through a Facebook group. Shameful. And then a couple of pieces of good news. A new antimicrobial, say that 12 times fast when you're on a deadline, peptide kills strains resistant to existing antibiotics. This is another innovation in medicine that will solve the problem of any of uh, you know bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. It's an exciting development. Thanks to Amesh Adalja for sharing that. And then finally, we get a bacon emoji. Check out that link. Thanks to Rob Abiera for sending that along. Everyone, I'm out of time. I'll talk to you Wednesday. And uh, happy voting, if I can tell you such a thing. Okay, take care. <laughs>